passage today comes from Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the, of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for your word uh, and all the wisdom that is within, Lord. I pray that we would open our hearts to what you have to teach us this morning, Lord, that we can set aside all distractions, um, things of this past week and things to come of this next week, Lord, that we can just be here in this place, um, that we would hear you, Lord, that you would touch our hearts, Lord. I thank you for this place where we can come and gather and speak your name and learn about you and to be in community. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, so uh, welcome to Lathia. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have not been here before, please uh, come up and introduce yourself to me um, after the service. But if I can get the Espy family to just come on up here. Um, yeah, yeah, please, yes. Kind of pathetic excitement, but I'll take it, right? Um, I wish you guys, like, cared that little about the football team. All right, oh, did I just do that? There you go. Just dig. You guys know me. I'm just gonna dig into that idol. Just dig, 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 dig. Heath's like death daggers coming from Heath's eyes, right now. Sorry, right, buddy. Um, so anyway, uh, for for those of you guys that have been around for a while, I just want to kind of like give a lay of the land. Um, we've been praying for some time that that God would continue to send more laborers here to Gainesville. Uh, to continue to help us uh, with the mission of the church, which is to continue to, to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus and to see a greater worship of Jesus. And so the, the problem with that is like, you know, when you college students come in here, you, you hang out here for like three years and then you, you just move away. You can't wait to leave here. And then and usually I hear from you guys in a year or two after you've left and you're like, I miss Gainesville. It's like, I tried to tell you that Atlanta is not that fun to live in or Orlando is not that fun to live in or, you know, whatever it may be. But that's okay. I'll I'll hear from you guys in a year or two. It's fine. But we're constantly praying that God would send more laborers here. So we've been praying for some time that God would send some, some seasoned ministry people here. And then back uh, earlier this year, I got a random email from a guy named Daniel out in Seattle who said, Hey, my wife owns this business. Uh, I put in my notice at the church I'm at this week that we're not going to be there. And we're praying about maybe coming to Gainesville. Let's chat. 
And so I didn't know what to make of it other than, okay, cool. And so we started praying. Uh, I met with these guys over uh, a teleconference, video conference, whatever you want to call it, and, you know, didn't think much of it other than, hey, you know, let's see what God does. And then they came to visit back in June. And Daniel and I talked on the phone a couple times up until then. The Lord has led them here to co-labor with us as a church and help lead us into this next season as a church. So let me officially introduce, this is Daniel. He's going to be a staff pastor here at Aletheia. Um, it's already been official, but we just want to introduce him to you guys up here. He's going to be preaching this morning. This is his wife, Leah, and then their children, Nehemiah, Elia, Aletheia. She spells it the same way as us, which is the proper spelling. So every one of you guys should know her name. And then there at the end is Josiah which really, really, really confused my son for the first time. He hadn't, he's like, no, I'm Josiah. We're like, okay, well, his name's Josiah too. So I'm going to pray for these guys. Uh, please come up and introduce yourself to them after service. Uh, they're, they're finally out of a hotel room and into an actual house, so they're excited about that. Yep. And, uh, but come up and introduce yourself to them. I'm going to pray for them, and then Daniel's going to lead us through uh, these first nine verses in Haggai this morning. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, leading Daniel and Leah to Gainesville. Thank you for uh, the friendships that you've already sparked uh, with them amongst much of the leadership here and, and many of the members. Pray that you would continue to help them transition well. Uh, help the kids to have a first great week of school this week at their new school. And bless Daniel this morning uh, as he teaches from your word. May we be open to it. Holy Spirit, might you move in our hearts that we might be convicted, drawn to repentance, and then serve you all of our days. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, family, you are dismissed. <laughs> All right. You ready to go? Yeah. Like one of you. Yeah. All right. So just one of the things you need to know off the very beginning, when you hear me teach and preach, I'm going to be a little bit more interactive, okay? This is not one of your classrooms at school, Okay. You can laugh, you can talk, you can move, you can even breathe during the sermon, okay? Like you can smile, you can give nods of approval as things are being said that agree when and are in line with the Word of God, okay? You do not have to sit there and just stare at me the entire time that I talk. Thank you, thank you. All right, here we go. Last week, Brent, one of the elders here at Aletheia Church, did a wonderful job challenging us and encouraging us in the first chapter of Haggai. And Brent asked an incredibly powerful question, one of the most powerfully provocative questions one human being can ask another is, whose kingdom are you building? And I don't know about you, but I have wrestled with that question all week long, that as I rise and as I go throughout my day and as I lay my head on the pillow at night, I kept asking myself, whose kingdom did I build today? Did I build my kingdom or did I strive to build God's kingdom? And the reason Brent asked us this powerful question because this is the issue that arose out of chapter 1 in the book of Haggai. Now, before Brent got into the book of Haggai, he gave us this wonderful timeline from creation 
all the way into the exile which the people of Israel find themselves in our current story. I am going to backtrack just a little bit and give us a smaller snapshot of the context of what's going on in this passage. It's going to lead us right into Haggai chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Over and over and over throughout the history of humanity, there has been this continual rebellion against God, but God and his overwhelming grace and mercy just drawing his people back to himself and though these people continue to rebel against God and people just continue to do what is right in their own eyes God continues to draw and call this people to himself but around 650 BC God raises up a guy named Jeremiah and I am sure when you graduated from college, or when you graduate from college, somebody is going to give you a card that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Just know what comes right after that is God sending his people into exile for 70 years. Okay? So just think about that before you're really excited about getting that Bible verse and you throw it up on your refrigerator as you await the job that you've been longing for so much, okay? Because what he might be sending you into is to the workforce, which is exile for the next 70 years, okay? <laughs> so he might give you just what you've been praying for. But the people have gone into exile. King Nebuchadnezzar has overrun the nation of Israel. He's king of Babylon. And in 586, the temple gets destroyed. Fifty years later, God has raised up a king in the book of Ezra named Cyrus. Now, if you're not familiar with how the Old Testament is structured, there's five sections in the Old Testament. The first five books we call the law. The next set of books are the history books, things like Kings and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. The third section is the wisdom literature, Proverbs and the Psalms and Ecclesiastes. The fourth section, the major prophets, and it just means big, long prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then the minor prophets, and Haggai is one of the minor prophets because he only gives us two chapters to go through. Now, as we go through this time, and as we look at this passage, you need to see that Haggai is going to come right out of the history book of Ezra. And in Ezra chapter 1, a guy named Cyrus, who's king of Assyria, uh, of Assyria at the time, he says, the Lord God has raised me up to send you Jews back to Israel to rebuild his temple. Very interesting that he sends a pagan king, a heathen king, someone who did not worship Yahweh to go and to rebuild his temple. But he acknowledges that in Ezra chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. And then we get into Ezra chapter 2 and we see the list of the over 50,000 people who make the trek back from, um, from where King Cyrus is reigning back to Jerusalem. And he sends them with resources and finances and provisions to rebuild this temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. And then in Ezra chapter 3, we see the people immediately get to work and they rebuild the altar. They make the altar the priority of rebuilding because that is where worship took place. That's where sins became atoned for. And then immediately following that, the people continued to have their priorities in the right place, and they laid the foundation of the temple. And I need you to feel what is taking place in this laying the foundation of the temple, because it is key to unlocking what is going to take place into today's passage. 
It says that, that when the people rebuilt the temple, that the young people, much like those in this room, and the way you might celebrate the national championship that Florida won in football a few years back, the way you celebrated when Felipe Franks completed the Hail Mary into the end zone against Tennessee, the joy you felt on your wedding day at the birth of your first child, getting that job, graduating, whatever it is, that joy that just wells up in your soul that you can't contain, that just causes spontaneous outbursts. The young people are, are rejoicing and singing praise to the Lord their God because the temple foundation has been laid. But in the exact opposite, there is an older group of people. A group of people who saw that first temple in all of its splendor and Solomon's glory. And that, that people, they didn't feel like Florida on that football game. They felt like Tennessee as that touchdown pass was caught in the end zone. That people, they felt like they had failed their last test and didn't graduate from college. They felt like the jilted bride at the altar whose groom didn't show up. They felt like the mom who had just miscarried the child that she had hoped to bring in this world. And so in the nation of Israel, there are two very different things happening. One, people rejoicing over the laying of the foundation of the temple and a people looking to the past in deep sorrow at what once was but no longer will be. And immediately, as so often happens when we get to work doing the things that God has caused us to do, opposition arises from a group within. And they said, hey, who do you guys think you are rebuilding this temple? No, no, no. We are going to go and tattle on you to the new king, Artaxerxes. And they go to Artaxerxes and says, hey, this people is rebuilding this temple to worship their God, and they have a history of rebellion. You better look into them. And he looks into them, and he sends a letter that says, you better stop the rebuilding of this temple right now. And so they do. And then we move into Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. All of Haggai takes place in two verses in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, as we pick up the story in Haggai, I need you to notice what God says to his people. Why did I just tell you that they stopped the work? Come on, interaction. Why did I just tell you they stopped the work? Opposition and a letter from the king. Now, let's notice if God acknowledges that is a good reason for stopping what he has called his people to do. He says to them in, verse, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, so a new king now on the horizon, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Do you see any mention of the king in these verses? No. Because from God's point of view, it wasn't the king who stopped the work. 
It was the people misplacing their priorities. That the moment they felt one little ounce of opposition, even from the king, they decided to stop doing what God had clearly called them and commanded to do. And you need to understand the distance between their stopping of the building at the foundation and where we now in Haggai is 15 years later. So God is incredibly gracious and patient, allowing them and giving them time to continue the work that he has called them to do. But what they chose to do was to build their paneled houses. And as Brent so wonderfully explained to us last week, this is a key word in Hebrew that we doesn't quite carry over into our English language. It means a lavish house. It means an ostentatious house. They had taken the materials that were given for the temple and said, well, since this work has stopped, and since all these great, nice, and wonderful things are just laying around, we don't want them to go to waste. So why don't we take all these furnishings that are supposed to be for the worship and the praise and the honor of Almighty God, and we'll just make our house a little nicer we'll make our houses a little bigger we will impress our friends our relatives associates and neighbors when they come into our abode with all the nice fancy things that we have in our house and that is the accusation that God levies against his children because I love how he says this he doesn't call them his children does he what does he call them these people right and you know sometimes when you get mad at somebody else, though you may love them, be close to them, that you don't refer to them by that familial name. So he comes to them and says, these people. So we can see God's feelings about them and their continued lack of doing what he has called them to do in this passage. And then you need to pay attention to what God says in verses 5 and verse 7. I teach people all the time, if you ever see anything repeated in Scripture, you need to pay attention. It's a literary device that is used to draw your attention, to say, big point, flashing signs, neon, get your attention, here it comes. That's why when Jesus and John says, truly, truly, anytime you see Jesus, or if you're old school, verily, verily, okay, but if you hear, if you see Jesus say, truly, truly, like this is a flashing sign, like this is a major point you are supposed to take notice of. Even strengthening the repetition if something is in brackets. So we're going to see God say something in verse 5, repeat it in verse 7. So whatever he says and whatever is in between, we better pay attention to as the people of God. And he says to these people in, in verse 5, he says, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And so in this moment, if you were to consider your ways, whose kingdom would you say that you are building? Is your life aimed and directed toward building God's house or toward building your own paneled house? And that paneled house can take form in a myriad of ways. It can become our education. It can become our career. It can become our marriage, raising kids, and it could become our retirement. 
So many things could get in the way of building paneled houses that take priority over what God himself has called us to do as the children of God. So we have to continually ask ourselves the question that Brent asked us last week, whose kingdom are you building? In verse 8, God is going to tell us why he wants them to build his house. He says to them in verse 8, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. If you want to know why God calls us to do what he calls us to do, it's so that he may take pleasure in the work of our hands and be glorified, that his name would be glorified. If you want to know why you exist upon this earth, it is to bring pleasure to the Lord your God and to bring glory to His great and holy name. If we, in our living, in our moving, in our breathing, in our doing, in our being, seek to bring Him pleasure through the work of our hands and to glorify His holy name, we can know that the Lord our God is with us. And then something takes place in verse 12, which is very rare in the entire canon of Scripture. The people actually obey. It is an incredibly rare thing to be in the Bible and see that people actually listen to and obey the Word of God. So we should not miss this moment in history where we see that it says in verse 12 that the remnant, all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And you need to understand, you are about to see four of the most beautiful words in the entire scripture. I am with you. God says, because you have turned from your ways, because you have sought to bring me glory, because you have sought to bring pleasure to me, you need to know as the children of God, I am with you. You don't have to fear that king. You don't have to worry about the harvest. You don't have to to have concern for anything else. Because if Yahweh your God is with you, there is nothing to fear. With this beautiful message, the people become energized to rebuild the temple. It says their spirit is stirred up by the Lord their God. They find the energy and the strength to do what they could not do when they took their focus off of God and building his kingdom and put it on another man who had told them to stop. And this brings us into Haggai chapter 2. And the key to unlocking Haggai chapter 2, especially verses 1 through 9, is the very first line. In the seventh month, On the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Does the seventh month on the 21st day of the month mean anything to anyone in this room? 
didn't to me either. I had no clue what this actually was supposed to represent and to signify for us. But what we know is that on the first day of the sixth month, which was dated in August the 20th, 520 B.C., that's when the Lord first speaks to Haggai. About three weeks later, we see the people obey and their spirits are stirred up. But in chapter 2, we see another three weeks has taken place. And it is not of any coincidence at all that this message is delivered on the seventh month and on the 21st day of the month. Because a very significant feast is coming to its conclusion. Now let me give you a note about feasts in the Bible. And this should be up on your screen. That every biblical holiday given to the Jewish people has three aspects. Israel was to observe the holiday in the present in order to remember something that God had done in the past while looking forward to some future prophetic purpose hidden within each festival. So with every festival that's celebrated, there is an element of the past, an element of the present, and an element of the future. Here, we are in what we call the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, okay? This is a feast that religious Jews still observe to this day. They, whether they live out in the country or whether they live in the city in Jerusalem, they will build little temporary tents and little temporary shelters, some on their balcony of their apartment, and they will go live inside this little tent, yep, think REI, put a tent on the balcony, go live in it for a week to help them remember this festival. And what God wanted them to remember in this festival was something about the past and God's provision for the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. That even though they had rebelled against the Lord their God, even though they had not taken the land in Canaan as they were told to in faith, God, even in the midst of their wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, gave them three meals a day by his own hand, provided water for them to drink in the hot desert. I've been there, let me tell you, it is a hot desert. And it says their clothes never wore out and their shoes never wore out in 40 years. So God graciously provides for his children even in the midst of their rebellion. He wanted them to remember provision in the past. But currently what they're celebrating, right in the middle of October, this would have been the final harvest. This would have been the celebration of the final harvest, that all the crops they had planted in the spring, everything that God had grown over the summer. So from first harvest to the last harvest, this would have taken place on the seventh month, on the 21st day. And it was supposed to be a great time of rejoicing. But from chapter 1, what do we recall about this harvest? It was meager and pitiful. But not only does this feast call them to look to the past and to celebrate the present, the future aspect of this feast was one to where we would look to the future and the provision of the Messiah and the great wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And the intention of this feast was to direct their focus. So last week, Brent asked us this question about our priorities. But the next step that we take, that once we put our priorities in place, is we have to maintain focus. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good about making a resolution when I know something needs to change, but I struggle in keeping that resolution as time presses on and as the tyranny of the urgent comes into my life between my relationship with my wife, between our business, between raising our four kids and all the things that I have to do in life. It is really easy to get sidetracked in the priorities that I know I should have in my life by the tyranny of the urgent, what we call the whirlwind that can take up most of our lives and most of our days. And so that's why this message is taking place here at this time, because three weeks into the work, how do you think the people are doing? Do you think they're as energized on week three as they were on day one when the Spirit of the Lord stirred them up? We can relate this to so many areas of our lives beginning of a new semester the beginning of a new job we wake up to that new job we're so excited we can't wait to get to work we can't wait to be there it's going to be so great and three weeks into it I hate this job I need to find another one right and so so often our focus can get off of what we know we need to be focused on in our priorities so let me show you what God does for these people as their focus was waning on the priorities that they knew they needed to put in place to build God's kingdom rather than their own. Remember, God wanted them in the past to remember His provision toward them in the wilderness. But I want you to see what they are focusing on in the past in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? See, the reason the old people were wailing is because they remembered Solomon, the richest man to ever live, and all of his splendor with all of his gold and all of his silver and all of his bronze, and this temple, this house he had built for the Lord, the, his God to dwell in. But all they're seeing is that no matter how much we work, no matter how hard we work, our efforts will never compare to what Solomon has built. And so God's encouragement to them comes three times. So we've already seen him say something double. Consider your ways. Now we're going to see something in triplicate beginning in verse 5. Or in verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. Be strong. Have some resolve. Have some intestinal fortitude to stick with the work that I have called you to. So not only are they looking to the temple in the past and its current dilapidated state and they're feeling sorrowful about it, what did we say they're right in the middle of? On the last day of the great feast, is there a great feast being had? No. It is a pitiful and meager feast. They are wondering how they are going to get through the winter and feed their families. 
how they are going to survive the upcoming winter because there seems to be no food. And so God encourages them once more in the present with this message. And he says at the end of verse 4, Work, for I am with you. Because if they would remember God's provision in the past, that when he was with the people of Israel, they would know that as the children of God, they had no need to worry about anything in the present because the Lord and God, the Lord God himself had bound himself to a covenant that says, if you fear me and walk in my ways, here are all the blessings I will pour out on you as a people. The reason he follows the message of be strong three times with I am with you is because the strength to continue on and to carry on could not be found in themselves, but could only be found in God alone. And I don't know if you've ever been in this place in life where your past feels like it is weighing you down and it is hanging on you and will not let you go. And the present, you are as miserable as you can be that you have an incredibly hard time seeing your way out of it into the future. But that's where these people were. They were so downtrodden and so depressed in their current state that they couldn't even begin to dream about and imagine a more glorious future. And so God gives them a vision of a greater future that is so far beyond their present circumstances that he says, Fear not, my spirit remains in your midst. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Now they had to wonder and imagine what that would be. But we as the church, we get to look 2,000 years in the rearview mirror and know exactly what he was talking about. The treasure of all nations, Jesus Christ himself. The glory to the temple exceeded when Jesus, when God himself walks into that temple. The glory of that temple far surpassed the glory of anything Solomon built or they could ever build. And so God gives them a shot of hope. He gives them a shot of inspiration. Now left for us this morning is to answer two questions. How do we apply this to us? And what does God want us to become and do in light of this message? How does something that happened 2,500 years ago to a people in a culture we aren't very familiar with apply to us today here at Aletheia Church as we reside here in Gainesville, Florida? We have to go back to the big question. Whose kingdom are you building? You've got to be honest with yourself in answering this question. You've also got to recognize and realize 
that if you are going to make building God's kingdom the priority of your life, it will take incredible focus. It will take incredible attention and effort. An effort that does not reside in you, nor can be found in you, but can only be found through God's presence in you alone. So let's take these three aspects of the feast and apply them to our lives today. Let's talk about the past. Let me talk to you who are not yet believers in the room, not yet followers of Jesus. Can you admit to yourself that your life has been about building your own kingdom? Let me just tell you as one who has lived a little bit of life. A lady once told me, she goes, Daniel, you'll be a pretty good preacher and pastor once you get a little gray in your whiskers. So now at the ripe old age of 42, and having been a pastor for the last 12 years, I, I, I hope you respect the gray, because the Bible says a lot about respecting the gray on an old man's head. And I think right now I qualify as the old man in the room. Um, I have seen it hundreds and thousands of times. People build their own kingdom. I can promise you there is very little to no satisfaction in building your own kingdom. I have friends who make millions of dollars a year and are absolutely miserable. I have people who are in their dream, no people in their dream careers they're absolutely miserable because you can go from one thing to the next and to it from one experience to the next, but I, I promise you, idols always disappoint their worshipers. They always disappoint their worshipers. If you are looking for fulfillment in anything other than God himself, you will not find it. And I speak from my own experience and the experience of pastoring hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of others. to you who are believers and you're like, I know I'm a follower of Jesus, but if I'm honest with myself, my, my priorities haven't lined up. What you need is not to change kingdoms, but you need to change your focus. You need to figure out how it is you get to focus. And so in the past, where's the first place that we are always called to focus as people? And it's the gospel itself, right? It's the gospel. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus, that for the not yet believer in the room, that no matter how long you've built your own kingdom, no matter even today, if you're like, I don't care what that guy said, maybe you, this recalls in your mind 10, 20 years down the road, there is hope for you that God will still draw you to himself, that you can come to him at any moment, and this forgiveness that is offered through Jesus Christ for building our own kingdoms rather than his will always be extended to you until you draw your final breath. But once you draw that final breath, it will no longer be available to you. But this invitation to come into the kingdom is always there. But church, you who are believers, you don't get the gospel and then move on from the gospel as if you don't need it anymore. You've got to keep that gospel in your hip pocket or even better, on your heart every day. We as the people of God must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because if not for the grace of God, where would we be? Where would we be 
if not for the radical grace of God. I can only imagine where I would be that as I was a senior in college and I was sitting at that four-way stop sign and God spoke to me when I wasn't even looking or asking. And it radically changed the course of my life. I cannot imagine where I would be. And I'm sure many of you know exactly where you would be if the grace of God had not wrecked your life. And so you need that same grace today and every day for the rest of your life as much as you needed it on the day that God regenerated your heart and called you his own. As we sit here in the present, the question that that has to be asked and that has to be answered whether you want to or not is, has the Spirit of God stirred anything up in you last week and this week with the conviction that there are things that need to change in your life when it comes to priorities and focus, when it comes to the kingdom that you are building. If not, let me express to you that I have incredible worry for your soul. Because anyone who can sit under the word of God as it was preached last week, and it is preached every week here in this church and feel no conviction at all, has a conscience that has been seared. And you, more so than anyone, needs to get on your knees before God and beg Him to awaken your heart to the truth of who He is and to the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. But if your heart has been stirred last week and this week, if you feel the conviction of God's Holy Spirit, let me make two notes to you. And one is about expectations. We live in an instant gratification society that can be summed up in the Burger King commercial, your way right away. Just let me say, when it comes to God's timeline, I have never experienced my way right away. If you think that making a, a resolution today is going to fix the problem and not meet incredible opposition from the world, from your own flesh, and from your enemy Satan, you are in for a rude awakening. And like I tell all people who are getting into a relationship or in a relationship, 99% of all your problems come from one thing, unmet expectations. So have some met expectations that God is not on your timeline. That you are walking through this according to His timeline, and He is doing something bigger and more beautiful than you can imagine and more painful than you ever desired. But it will be for His glory and for your good. And also note that it cannot be done in your strength. God has set it up so the moment you think it can be done in your strength, he lets the bar compress on your chest and get trapped. And there's no one else in the gym to lift it off your chest. And you've got to cry out and say, Jesus, come help me. Because if you don't, it's going to roll on my neck and I'm going to choke myself out. That's how he works. Because the whole point of the Christian life is to be dependent upon God rather than our own strength. And lastly, we'll turn to the future. And here's what I want you to do just, just for a moment. I want you to enjoy, enjoy this 
pause of silence. I just want you to think about your future. When you imagine the future the most, when you're sitting at home, when you're working out, when you're running, when you're having fun with your friends, when, when you're just sitting there and the future pops into your mind, what does it look like? Does it look like a big house? Does it look like material possessions? Does it look like having all your desires met? What does it look like? Can you answer that honestly? Because Jesus tells us that where our treasure is, and our treasure is always the future, that's where our heart is. And if you want to know what kingdom your heart is connected to, I would ask you, when you imagine the future, what do you imagine the most? What focus are you drawn to when you imagine the future? Now, I want you to hear me say something very clearly, because what I am not saying is you should not have a good job, you should not make good money, you should not have a good house, you should not have a nice car. There is nothing inherently wrong with all of those things. But those things are not the priority by which we live. The priority by which we pursue our hopes and our dreams comes in not building our own kingdom. But pursuing our hopes and dreams in job, in career, in finance, in fun, in all these things, making God's kingdom the priority as we go about those things. So many Christians believe it's wrong to pursue greatness and to pursue wealth so that you can do great and wonderful things for the kingdom of God and for His glory, to see people set free, to, to, to raise people up and to feed people around the world. And none of that is wrong. None of that is wrong to pursue your hopes and dreams as long as God's kingdom takes priority in your pursuit of those goals and dreams. But the key is, as we live here in this life, are we trying our best to lay up treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's nothing wrong with having things. There's nothing wrong with pursuing your hopes and dreams. But the question is, do those line up to where you are storing up treasures in heaven? And so the question is, how do we do this? Because I, I think it's awesome as just the people I've talked to in this room. I know there are engineers in the room, people pursuing engineering. There's school teachers. I know there um, are, are people who are just pursuing wonderful careers in this room. We have personal fitness trainers. We have business owners. 
How do you incorporate this into your future life, in the medical field, in the pharmacies that you're going to work in? How do you do all this? And it's actually not that hard to incorporate kingdom building and making it the priority as you walk out of here today. Because there's one thing I haven't told you about this feast. There's one thing that is unique about the Feast of Tabernacles that separates it from all the other feasts in the Bible. It is the only feast in the entire canon of Scripture where all the people are invited to participate. All the other feasts are for the Jews and for the Jews alone. But in Deuteronomy chapter 31, when God speaks to Moses, he says, Gather all the men, all the women, and the children, along with all the foreigners in their land, so they can learn to fear the Lord. It is no coincidence that when Solomon built the temple, the day that it was dedicated was on the 21st day of the seventh month. And Solomon said, Lord God, may you hear the prayers of the foreigners who are here today. Because what did that temple represent? The presence of God and people who were not his own being connected to his presence. And do not miss in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, that the Lord your God, Jesus Christ, stood up on the last great day of the feast, and he stood in that temple that they had rebuilt, and he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do not miss how everything in Scripture is tied together for God's glory and for our good. And church, that is why the Bible says if you want to be kingdom builders, you do not have to set aside your hopes and dreams. But what you must do is incorporate 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21 in your life. Paul tells us, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, he says this to the church in Corinth. Church, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that Jesus has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on from this day forward may we as Aletheia church may we as the people of God therefore from now on regard no one according to the flesh even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So guys, wherever you are at today, if you want to be about building God's kingdom, all you have to do is make the ministry of reconciliation the priority of your life. That as you enter into the school year, as you go to work tomorrow, as you step wherever you go, in the park that you play in with your kids, in the sw favorite swimming hole that you have in the summer, wherever you go, if you will seek to make the minister of reconciliation the priority of life, you have the freedom in Christ Jesus to pursue your hopes and dreams, to extend and further the glory of God in whichever way your heart desires and your passions line up for His glory. Now, something that I often do and I'm going to do today, which may be a little foreign to you, is that I like to give us a chance to respond in worship. And so if someone could just cut out the overhead lights, if the band could come on back up for just the next few minutes, I'm going to just lead us through a time of, of worship before the band leads us into a time of communion and so you feel free to express this however you want to just realize this is what I'm going to kind of take us through I'm going to take us through a time of prayer for confession for repentance for resolution for dependence on God for asking him to fulfill his promises to us in this church and around the city so if you would not mind just bow your head and close your eyes and just take this opportunity to let God's Spirit work in your heart and in your life this morning. Father, I as one of the pastors and shepherds of this church want to confess my sin and our sin as a people. God, that so often our dreams and our hopes and our future exist for our own kingdoms rather than yours. Father, I pray like the people in Haggai's day that you gave hearts of repentance. Father, you would give us hearts of repentance that would turn from building our kingdoms to building your kingdom. Father, I pray that your spirit would give us resolve to make resolutions to focus on the task in front of us and that as we focus your spirit would recall to mind the past and the beautiful picture of the gospel and how it's present with us today that we as the children of God have the Holy Spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance 
May we recall and remember that you are with us, that you are strong inside of us, that if we are going to carry out the mission that you have called us to as the people of God, that it has to be done, that it must be done, not in our strength, but in your strength. For it is when we confess our weakness that you become strong in us. Father, may we depend on you. And Father, I'm asking that in this new season that this church is about to enter into, that this new season that this university is about to enter into, that this new season that this city is about to enter into, that God, you would raise us up, not only us, but all the believers in this city, that you would raise us up to build your kingdom, to be ministers of reconciliation to a lost and dying world who is looking for anything and everything to bring it fulfillment. But God, you promised in your word to the people of Haggai's day that when that glory came to the temple, that you would announce peace. Father, may we realize that the longing of every human heart is a heart at peace. And that peace can only be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord God Almighty, stir up our spirits for your glory. Stir up our spirits for your pleasure. Do something not just to us, not just for us, but do something through us that would reach the students in classrooms, that would reach our co-workers in the cubicle next to us, that would reach the moms in the parks when our children played together, that would reach into the restaurants that we enter into, that would reach into our neighbors' lives and shine the beautiful glory and message of Jesus. God, give us open doors this week. Give us divine appointments because you said in your word in Acts 17, 26, that you have put all men at all times in all places. May we embrace this time and this place to be ministers of reconciliation, building the kingdom of God, laying up treasures in heaven all of our days. It's in the great and mighty name of Jesus we pray these things.